0: Welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. Growing up, my family had this tradition, and maybe this is common tradition, I don't really know, but every birthday you had the same cake. So everybody in the family had a certain cake that they had on their birthday, and And you couldn't take somebody else's cake for your birthday. You had to be your cake for your birthday. And so growing up, my cake for my birthday was yellow layer cake with chocolate frosting. But the inside layers were pudding, but not just instant pudding. It was like the hot cook and serve pudding. There had to be some effort in the cake. And my mom made this for me every single birthday. And From as far back as I can remember, on my birthday, I would have the yellow layer cake with chocolate frosting, pudding layers, and a cold glass of milk. It was my birthday. Well, on my first married birthday, I'm going to spend it with my wife, not with my mom. I feel like that's a good marriage decision. And so my wife decides to bake this cake, which is a pretty pretty uh, courageous undertaking because at this point we've only spent one of my birthdays together. We dated for six months. I knew that she was the one. We got engaged. We got married seven months later. So she had only partaken of this cake one time, but she decided to make it for my birthday. And it was incredibly special to me because this cake just screams my birthday, nostalgia, home, warm feelings of joy. And so I was so excited and so appreciative that my new wife, decided that this was what she was going to do to celebrate my birthday. So uh, we cut a slice saying happy birthday. And I went and I took a bite of that cake and it was heaven until I hit the layers. And I realized that she did not use pudding. She used chocolate frosting for it. But it it still tasted good and I still enjoyed it. And I wasn't going to say anything, but she said, what do you think? Now, I wish the story ended there. That'd be a great story. But in fact, it doesn't. And out of my mouth came words that I had no control of. And I said, it's good, but it's not how my mom makes it. Now, church, you got to understand, I'm not this dense, okay? I know better. Like, I care. I think about these things. I don't want to be that guy. But Lacey assures me that's what I said. Now, I don't think that's what I said, okay? Just to be clear, Lacey's not up here, so I'm sharing her version of the story. If you want to hear my version, I think I said, this is the most incredible cake ever. You are the best baker I've ever experienced. This cake is amazing. My mom makes it differently, and it's horrible compared to yours, Yours is the best. You're the best baker I've ever met. I don't even like my mom anymore. I love you. You're an incredible gift. Thank you for this awesome birthday cake. That's my version of the story. That's her version of the story. Do with it as you will. But whatever came out of my mouth, it wasn't good. But Lacey didn't react in that moment. We continued to have a peaceful night together. However... The next day, I came home from work expecting to have a slice of cake. You know, I just wanted another piece. There was only two of us that ate the night before, so there was a ton left. I was going to get a glass of milk. I was going to eat it even before dessert because it it was the day after my birthday, which is essentially your birthday, right? So I go home, go looking for this cake, and I can't find it. We don't have a big house. We're newly married. It's a small house, small kitchen. I'm looking. I can't find the, the cake anywhere. Heartbroken now at this point. I'm freaking out. I go to Lacey, have you seen my birthday cake? And she said, yes. I said, where is it? She said, well, you obviously didn't need it. So I took it to the office and shared it with everyone there, and it's completely gone. Now, for the sake of my marriage, I'm not going to share the rest of the story. But suffice it to say, that year I learned one does not need a particular cake in order to celebrate their birthday. In fact, in the years following, I learned you don't even need cake to have a birthday, right? It took a little time to repair that whole situation. But you'll be happy to know that my new favorite cake is carrot cake. And Lacey makes the best carrot cake I've ever had in my life. There is no one who can come even close, right? But when it comes to food, what are our needs? Do you need a cake? Do you need a certain cake to celebrate your birthday? Or what do we need when it comes to food? Surely we all agree you need food to live. But how much? And what types? Does it have to be a certain way? or a certain kind, or a certain flavor? I mean, because we have tons of food, right? I mean, we got fast food, we got slow food, we got ethnic food, we got junk food, we got vegan food, we got delivery food, we got morning food, we got snack food, we got beautiful food, we got expensive food, we got cheap food, we got foodie food, whatever your mood, we have the food, right? I mean, there's food everywhere around us. If you can imagine it, we have it when it comes to food. But do you need it? Last week, Dr. Jim started this new sermon series called Taste and See, and he said God created us to need and to enjoy food, and God created food for us to eat. By surveying the food in God's Word over the next couple weeks, we will discover a lot about the beauty of God's plan and our place in it. And he taught a profound thought. I don't know if you recognize how profound it is. Maybe you've thought it before, but I, like Dr. Jim, had not thought about it before. But God created us as consumers in the most positive sense. We we were created to consume, but not only to consume, but to find pleasure in consuming. God creates us to need food, but then he also creates it so that we enjoy it. And throughout Scripture, we're encouraged to enjoy it. I mean, think about it. You consume a lot of things, but you don't necessarily find pleasure in them. Think about oxygen. Nobody goes, hey, the oxygen at Falls Church, really good oxygen, right? Nobody goes, hey, this Friday night, we're going out to uh, Loudoun County because the oxygen out there is amazing, right? We, we, we consume oxygen all the time. maybe, I grant you, maybe you'll go to Great Falls or you'll go into the Shenandoah Mountains and there you'll stand and you'll take a deep breath of fresh air and it'll do something for you. It'll be satisfying. But for the most part, we don't walk around finding pleasure in the oxygen we breathe. Well, God could have done that with food. It could have just been something that we consume and there'd be no experience around it. But how kind of God. How kind and loving of God that he chooses to make food satisfying for us. That is a loving creator. That is a loving and thoughtful father that he would make us that way. Dr. Jim also taught us last week that God created us with a need to eat, and then he met that need. He created a need for a product, and then he cornered the market on the product. He's the only one who can satisfy that need that he gave us. In turn, I think we can make the case throughout Scripture that God intended us, he created us to be dependent upon him. And this week, I want to continue exploring this idea of food in the Bible and specifically eating as needed. And I want to ask a couple questions. I'm going to attempt to answer these questions, but these are questions I think you could chew on. See what I did there? Throughout the week. To come, And these are a couple questions I had as exploring these scriptures and this idea. The first one is this. How do we allow God to meet our needs when we live in such abundance? How is it possible that we can depend on God when, if we're really honest with ourselves, we have enough that we don't need to depend on him? And also, how do we refuse to be consumed by our consumption? We were made to consume. There's no doubt about that. But it is obvious, it doesn't take a scientist or a brilliant theologian to figure out that our consumption sometimes consumes us. How do we refuse to let that happen? And lastly, how do we discipline? Is it possible that we could discipline ourselves to need God? Is there something we could do or practice in order to need God? So to explore these questions and this idea of eating as needed, I want to jump into a passage that's familiar to anybody who grew up in church. And even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably heard an expression that comes from this passage. We're going to be looking at the story of manna and quail with the Israelites. And even if you never studied the Bible, you probably heard the expression manna from heaven, right? So let's jump in together. We're going to look at Exodus 16, starting with verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the Israelites said to them, and I've got to read this with emotion because they're grumbling and complaining, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you, you've brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Can you hear the grumbling and complaining in their voices, right? Two months ago, the Israelites were in Egypt. They are slaves in Egypt. And now they're wishing that they were slaves again. Or they're wishing that they had died. Why are they wishing that? Because they are hangry. You know what hangry is, right? Everybody knows what hangry is. It's when hunger and anger come together and they make someone hangry. Isn't it amazing, this is kind of an aside, how connected our emotions are to our stomachs? I mean, so much so that we invented a word to describe the experience of being cranky when you're hungry, right? Right? If I try to say that I'm hangry in Spanish, I got to say estoy enfadado porque tengo hambre. I'm angry because I'm hungry, right? But in English all I have to say is I'm hangry. Right? Like we 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 this is such a real experience for us. We invented a word to capture it. And you know when someone's hangry, don't you? Maybe you have a loved one or a friend or a family member. Yeah, you're thinking of them right now, right? When they get hungry, that they get hangry. I got a two-year-old, okay? He gets hangry. And it is not pretty. You know, uh, he loves fruit snacks. I hate fruit snacks. Because, I mean, I, obviously, I'm not the healthiest of eaters, but even I hate the idea of calling something that more is, has more in line with a plastic bottle chemically than it does with a piece of fruit, a fruit snack, right? It's not a fruit, all right? It's not a fruit snack. Call it a Sour Patch Kid. I'm totally fine with that. But when you call it a fruit snack, it's just, it's not a fruit, all right? So anyways, we, we don't buy them often, but we did buy them in August for kind of our little staycation, hanging out. And it was a nice little treat. My two-year-old became addicted, every single meal, you know, or every single snack, he'd wake up in the morning, first thing he would say, fruit snack, fruit snack, fruit snack, fruit snack. It was like, it was out of control. So we had, in the month of December, we had to do a fruit snack detox with our two-year-old. Have you ever tried to detox a two-year-old from fruit snacks? I mean, It's awful. He gets hangry. He gets mean. He becomes evil. I'm looking, I'm like, you're the spawn of Satan. Like, he's just like hitting and crawling. Like, he just, I want my fruit snack, fruit snack, fruit snack, right? He gets hangry. The Israelites, they were hangry. Listen to them. Listen to what they said. They said, in Egypt, they're complaining to Moses and Aaron. In Egypt, we sat around pots of meat and ate as much as we wanted. Moses and Aaron had to look at each other and be like, are these people for real? They were slaves. Ain't nobody handing them pots of meat and letting them eat all that they wanted. They had been crying out to an unknown God to save them. They were slaves. But their, their stomach now is not only affecting their emotions, now it's affecting their perceptions and their memories. They're remembering things differently. And you know what's interesting about this scripture? Go home and read it. It never mentions that they ran out of food. God's going to do this miracle. And often in Scripture, when God's going to do something miraculous like this, there's a setup to it. And you would expect to find, the Scriptures say, and they had been days without food. Go and read Exodus 15. It said there had been days without water, and then God did a miracle in order to supply them with water. Moses threw a stick into some fermented bitter water and it became fresh and clean. There's a setup that the people are thirsty and God meets their thirst. To me, the setup is missing in this scripture. The setup should say the people had gone days without food and God is about to meet their need. But what is the setup for this scripture? The people were complaining and grumbling. Grumbling. This is just my hypothesis, but I don't think they had run out of food. I think they were bored with the food that they had. I think they brought rations from Egypt, and and they were getting tired of them, and they wanted something different. Whatever the case, it doesn't really matter. Do not be mistaken, though. The Israelites let their biology determine their theology. The Israelites let their biology diminish their theology, They let what their bodies were experiencing determine what they believed about God. They let what was happening in their physical bodies, what was happening in the world around them, diminish what they believed about God. Their body was deciding whether or not God was going to be faithful. Their hunger pangs convinced them that God had forgotten them. Their need to consume was now consuming them, so much so that God— Church, think about this. It is now less than two months since God parted the Red Sea. These people, (laughs) think about this, walked through dry land in the middle of an ocean, in the middle of the sea, less than two months ago. And more than likely, it was only a couple of days ago that they were thirsty (laughs) and they saw fermented bitter water become clean because Moses threw a stick in it and God made it clean and drinkable. And now, just just two months later, they're doubting whether or not God is going to provide for their need or for their complaint, their hunger, because their body's telling them something. They're experiencing some hunger pains. Think about that. Their biology was determining their theology. In that moment, they let their desire to consume cause them to presume, to presume how God was going to act. And this is as true for us today as it is for the Israelites back then. Too often we let what we experience in our bodies, in our world, determine what we believe about God. God could have done something in our lives. He could have parted a Red Sea. He could have made bitter water clean. But it doesn't matter because whatever that need to consume is in that moment causes us to misremember the past, to have a, a different view of it or a different understanding of it. And all of a sudden, our biology determines what we believe about God. Don't be people who let their biology determine their theology. And so the story continues. We're going to skip some verses. I'm going to jump back in at verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Again, to my earlier point, he didn't say, I have seen their hunger. (laughs) He's not responding to their hunger. He's responding to their grumbling. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is that? For they didn't know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. Now, pause real quick. How much did God tell them to take? As much as they need. And an omer is just a unit of measurement. So for our sake, I'm not saying this is the exact measurement, but for our sake, when you see omer, think pound. So each person's to take what they need, and then they tell them what that need is. That need will be an omer, a pound per person. They continue. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it till morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Now if you've read this story a lot, you gotta, you gotta sometimes when you're reading scripture, you gotta stop. And you you gotta not let it just hit you like it's always hit you. You gotta sit there for a couple minutes. You gotta you gotta say, you know, is this story different? Why is why is this happening this way? Why is it happening? And if you read this story, you really gotta, gotta wrestle with does God not like leftovers? Right? I mean, like, listen, if you don't like leftovers in your house or Or if you're a kid and you don't like leftovers and you want to make a case that God hates leftovers, I'm not saying you can make it throughout Scripture, but you could proof text this text, right? Because this is leftovers. God essentially says, each person gets this much, but when you're done in the evening, even if your kid didn't finish their manna, you got to throw it away. You, You can't save it until the morning. That's bizarre. God is the one who invented natural preservatives, Why didn't he just throw a little in the manna, right? In fact, he does. On the night before the Sabbath, they're allowed to take extra so that on the Sabbath, they don't have to go out and pick up more manna. But for the rest of the week, God doesn't infuse it with natural preservatives. He wants them to go out every day. It's bizarre. And it also doesn't make sense because it's not an efficient use of their time. Think about it. They could go to the store once a week, the store being the desert floor, right? Load up their Costco manna run, bring it all home and do something else more efficient with their time. But God's not concerned about the efficiency of their time. He's doing something else in this moment. Now we cannot know for sure why it is God does this bizarre thing. Why he he makes the manna only last so long. But I do have a couple hypotheses and one of them is this. These are former slaves who most likely have had to hoard and to fight for anything they could get in order to survive. They likely have a scarcity mentality, which means there's little room in their life for generosity. And they've learned to depend solely on themselves. That is the nature of what it would be to be a slave, right? If God wants to transform them, he's going to have to first deprogram them. He's going to have to rip out of them the scarcity mentality, the self-reliance mentality, right? If he wants them to become a generous community, which we know he wants them to be blessed, to be a blessing to all nations. If he wants them to be generous, he's got to rip that scarcity mentality out of them. They're never going to be generous unless he can rip that out of them. If God wants them to depend fully on him, then he has to rip that self-sufficient, self-reliant, the only person I can count on me mentality out of them. They're never gonna fully rely on him unless he can get that out of them. And so in my view, God is transforming them. He's deprogramming them by making them rely on him to meet their needs every morning. Every day is a new day and every day he reestablishes the contract between the Israelites and him that they will depend on him. Now think about us. For most of us, we have the opposite problem today. We're so far away from need, we don't even experience it. In fact, the the whole goal of our culture, you could say, is to get as far away from experiencing need or suffering as much as possible, right? We're 10,000 miles away from need. We could say God meets our needs, but really, if we're honest, we meet our needs. We take care of ourselves. And so how then are we to learn to be dependent on God if we're surrounded by such abundance? How do we experience that need to rely on God? I suggest that we're going to have to discipline ourselves to do that, but we'll explore that more in a couple minutes. Now, let's continue this story, but let's fast forward 40 years. So now we're in the book of Deuteronomy. The Israelites have wandered the desert for 40 years. And as bad and painful as that has been, God has been present with them. They've had great victories. God's protected them when they've been attacked. They've been blessed. They've accumulated wealth. He's provided for them. He's taken care of them. And now he's about to give them a piece of land. They're about to have their own place to go. But in preparation for that, Moses kind of gives a speech of everything that's happened over the past 40 years. And in that speech, In Deuteronomy 8, 3, Moses says this. He, being God, humbled you, causing you to hunger, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. All right, Moses, so what you're saying is this whole bizarre exercise that happened back in the beginning of this journey where God gave us quail and manna, but the manna didn't last and it would rot if we tried to keep it. So we had to go out every day and get it except for on the Sabbath. On the day before the Sabbath, we could gather more and somehow that manna had preserved us to make it through the day. You're saying this whole thing was to teach us that humanity does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Yes, that's what I'm saying, Moses would say maybe, right? The whole exercise was to teach the Israelites that every word that comes from the mouth of God, they can rely on it. Now that's a weird way to put it, isn't it? Have you ever read this? Jesus says this actually in the New Testament, and I've always kind of struggled with it. Because here we're talking about a physical need. And Jesus, or Moses in this case, says that God's response is to offer words, right? Man does not live on bread alone, physical feeding, eating stuff. He lives on the words that come from God. It's like, wait, I got a real need. I don't need some words like good job or go get it. Or I don't need to like memorize a piece of scripture. Like it seems kind of like maybe to me and maybe not you, but it seems like God kind of missing it here, right? Like these people have hunger. They don't need words why, why, Moses, are you saying that God is offering words? Jesus, why would you say that man lives on every word that comes from the mouth of God? That, that doesn't seem, those, it's like apples and oranges. Those things don't mean to make sense. Except that everything comes from the mouth of God. You see, in Hebrew, there's not the word, word there. The word there is Every. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every, and you could almost hear or you can read into it, and interpreters and translators do, everything that comes from the mouth of God. Moses says, and Jesus affirms later, that humanity lives on everything that comes from the mouth of God. Because what comes from the mouth of God? Everything. Everything comes from the mouth of God. Think, think about this. Everything in all creation comes from the mouth of God. Because how did God create the world? Did he use his hands? How did God create the world? What did he use? His words, his mouth. Come on, church. That's good. That's, That's a good news, right? Look at this. Genesis 1. What does it say? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6, and God, come on, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water, and it was so. Verse 9, and God, yes, there you go, let dry ground appear, and it was so. Verse 11, then God, let the land produce vegetation, it was so. Verse 14, and God, let there be light in the vault of the sky, and it was so. Verse 20, and God, let the water teem with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth. Verse 24, and God, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. And it was so. And verse 26, then God said, let us create mankind in our image. Everything in all creation comes from the mouth of God. So when Moses says humanity does not live on bread alone, but on everything that comes from, the, every word that comes from the mouth of God, he means everything. God provides for everything. He creates it all from his mouth. It is on the words of God that we live, that we are sustained, that we have being. Everything comes from the mouth of God. The whole manna and quail thing was to teach the Israelites that God will meet their needs. This is the virtuous cycle of dependence Dr. Jim talked about last week. Whether you like the idea or not, God created us with a need, and He wants us to be dependent on Him in order to satisfy that need, in order to teach us to be dependent on God. The Israelites have been slaves for hundreds of years. They don't even know the name Yahweh, and Scripture says He humbled you, causing you to hunger, to teach you. To teach you what? To teach you dependence on him and him alone. I think we can make the case in this scripture and all scriptures that God is willing to teach you, to teach us to depend on him. God is willing to teach us to depend on him and him alone. Now, don't mishear this. I don't think God wants us to have codependence on him, a meshment where we lose ourselves in any agency we'd have, There's no identity of who we are, that we're fully dependent on him in the sense that we have no being on our own. I don't think that's what we're trying to say here, right? Because the Israelites, they still had to do something. If that were the case, God would have just put the food on the table and and cooked it. They would have woke up in the morning just eaten, right? But God wants them to still participate. There's still a place for them to be a part of the story, but he wants there to be a direct correlation between his providence and their satisfaction. Can we relearn that today? Even when we're surrounded by such abundance, when we really are completely self-reliant, even if you don't consider yourselves rich, you most likely are in comparison to most of the world. I recognize that there is food scarcity among us, that there are those of us that live in the poverty line, but below the poverty line, but for a large majority of us that live in this area, that's not the case. We have enough that there's never a day that we experience true need. So if we don't want to be people who are consumed by our consumption, if we want to be people who learn to depend on God, what will it take? If we want to be people who deal with our greed, what will it take? Well, may I suggest to you that we will need to rehearse self-denial. We'll we'll need to practice it. Like you practice violin, like you practice soccer, like you practice learning spreadsheets, whatever you practice. In the same way, if we're going to get good at being people who deny ourselves, we're going to have to rehearse it. We're going to have to practice it. And I think that's exactly what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4. This is where Jesus goes out and fasts for 40 days, and then he quotes Moses here. Let's look at this scripture, Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah, no kidding, right? The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written... Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. A first thing I want you to notice in this verse, the fast was over. Jesus had accomplished the fast. Look, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, after the fast was over, right? You kind of, when you sit with it like that, you kind of, you think the temptation is for him to eat, and so you think, well, why didn't the devil show up on day 39? Surely that would have been the time that Jesus was the most tempted, right? He, He would have surely been more tempted at that moment to give in, but the temptation is not to eat. The temptation, might I suggest, is to provide for himself. The temptation is to do what the Israelites were doing, where they collected more manna and tried to save it for the next morning. If Jesus provides for himself in this moment, he misses the whole point of the 40-day fast, which was to learn to be dependent on God. If he had a chosen self-reliance in this moment, he would have usurped all the lessons that he learned out there in the desert that day. Might I suggest the point of this fast was for Jesus to practice not being self-sufficient. Think about that. He was putting his desires, his power, his ability in its rightful place. And that's what fasting is. Fasting is putting food in its rightful place. Fasting is putting consumption into the right priority in our life. It's putting appetite into its rightful place. Fasting is reminding our body that we eat to live, not live to eat. It's reordering our experience and our understanding of our consumption and our appetite. And if Jesus was going to live the life that he wanted to, he had to get used to denying himself and depending on God. Imagine for a second having all the power in the world and choosing to be in need is not our whole goal in having the power, the money, the access to wealth that we have is the whole point of it that we would never need, right? If we're honest, yet Jesus has it all and he chooses to put himself in a place of need. That's a powerful thing we need to pick up on. But think about Why Jesus would do that? Because coming up in his life are going to be moment after moment where he has everything he needs. He's completely self-reliant. He has the power not to experience what he's going to experience, yet he's going to choose to experience it. So imagine having all the power in the world and the religious leaders just critiquing you, leading a protest against you every chance you get. If it's you and me and we have all the power in the world we're going to retaliate, are we not? But Jesus had denied himself enough. And, and I suggest that 40-day fast was like his uh, intensive class in self-denial. That when that moment comes, he can deny himself. Imagine being Jesus and your friends betraying you and you not retaliating, even though you know you could. Imagine being Jesus, having all the power in the world and people beating you and choosing not to respond Imagine being Jesus hanging on a cross, knowing you say one word, and the angels are there. They get you off. They heal you in a second, and you could smite everybody around you who had mocked you, done anything mean to you, hit you, whatever. How does Jesus choose to deny himself in those moments? I think it's a cop-out to say, well, he's Jesus, duh. He's the Son of God. He can just do that. No, he's fully human. The whole point of Jesus coming, or at least one of the major points of Jesus coming, is that he teaches us how to live the way we were intended to live. And I think we miss a big thing here. The self-denial, the putting others first that Jesus is able to do, he's able to do because he's rehearsed it. He's spent time in the desert rehearsing what it means to not satisfy his desires and to depend fully On God. You cannot do any of the things that Jesus has done in his life unless you first learn self denial and dependence on God. Can we do that? Can we learn to depend on God? Can we learn to choose to experience need? Can we create real opportunities to deny ourselves? Might I suggest we need to relearn the art of fasting? In Matthew 6, Jesus says, when you fast, not if you fast. (laughs) Don't you wish he said, if you fast, he says, when you fast. Jesus, I think, assumes and understands that if we're going to be people who deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him, we're going to have to be people who choose to practice self-denial. Now listen, Scripture's full, and we'll look at it in the weeks to come, of feasts. Scripture encourages us to enjoy food, to partake of it, yet the beauty of the Bible is the paradox of the Bible, right? Is that in the same Scriptures that encourage us to feast, it also encourages us to fast. It's as if God recognizes that our propensity to allow our consumption to consume us is a real thing, therefore, Fasting is offered as a way of reprioritizing, of putting our consumption, our desire, our appetite in check. And so this week, I want to encourage you to begin a journey of fasting. Now I recognize in this room there's going to be all kinds of views on fasting and experience with fasting. Some of you have done it before and you're an expert. Some of you are ready to throw something at me, right? Because it sounds like asceticism, we not You know, it's a, It sounds like not a choice, but it, it is scriptural, and I'm not asking you to do a certain thing this week. I'm just asking you to start a journey this week, and so for some on that journey, that would mean doing some research. You got to read about it. Read in, read what it says in scripture. Read some sacred books. Uh, you gotta. You gotta. Uh, you got to maybe read some science books, some biology books. Maybe you, you're like, there's no way our bodies were created to do this. Whatever it is, I want to encourage you to start doing that this week, to start practice denying yourself and depending on God. For some, this week it might mean uh, skipping a meal or two. Or some, it might be doing a juice fast where you drink fruit juices and only fruit juices for 24 hours, not fruit snack juices, Okay. Not sugar juices, like real fruit, like fruit. You know what I'm saying? Not sugar. Not, not something that would, could basically be this in a, in a liquid form, right? And you work up to a 24-hour fast, something like that. Teach your body what denial is, self-denial is, and teach your mind and your soul how to depend upon God so that you're not consumed by consumption. I love, there's two books that they're not... Um, they're not all about fasting, but they are about the spiritual disciplines. And one of them's Rich, Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. And he says this, fasting reveals the things that control us. When we fast, it's an opportunity to see the things that control us. And Dallas Willard, in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, he says, in fasting, we learn how to suffer happily. Suffer happily as we feast on God. Talk about a paradox. Suffer happily is not everything that we do in our culture to avoid suffering at all costs. Why then would we choose to suffer so that we could learn to do it happily, so that we could be like Jesus and deny ourselves and depend on God? So, I want to encourage you this week to start a journey towards fasting, to work up to it, to research, read, whatever you got to do. Maybe it's an argument with me. I don't know. Maybe that's your next step after we leave this place. It's like, I don't want... That's fine. But begin to think through this very biblical, spiritual practice. What could it mean for you in your discipleship journey? What could it do for you? Could you put your place yourself in a place where you deny yourself and learn to depend on God. Now, a disclaimer, there are people who should not fast. Anybody who has an eating disorder or a history of eating disorders, your, your understanding of food and your body is distorted and fasting is not going to be a helpful practice for you. So choose to fast something else, not food. If you're a pregnant nursing mother, your body's working overtime, okay? You can't fast. It's got, it's got things to do, all right? So please, pregnant and nursing mothers, if, uh, if you're a minor and you're interested in fasting, make sure you talk with your parents about it and have their input. And anybody with a medical issue that would be adversely uh, affected by fasting, fasting's not to be taken on if, if you're in chemo, right, or, or if you're a diabetic. There's ways to fast, but there's ways to face fast safely. And so in the pews, every one of your pews, there is a little fasting card if you want to take it. On it is the scripture from Matthew 4, 4. And I encourage you to if you're going to take on fasting, to, to memorize that. On the back are some practical tips. We're putting it on the screen for those of you watching online. So you just pause the stream, take a screenshot of it, and then you can keep it on your phone in the days to come. Thursday I was writing all day. I was reading and writing all day here at the church. And uh, well, sort of by accident... I started fasting, but sort of by intention. I kind of felt like if I'm going to ride on fasting, I kind of need to be in that mindset and be experienced it. But I fully intended to eat dinner when I got home. I, I knew I would get home late, but I, it, this wasn't a 24-36 hour fast. This was just kind of a day fast, and I, I would break my fast when I got home. Well, the, kind of the day got late, and when you're fasting, meal times are the hardest because your body, you've taught your body to send signals. They're not even hunger pains, but you think that they are, and they say time to eat, right? And you're like, time to eat. So about dinner time, I decided I'd, I was just going to take a walk. I had a meeting that I had to get to in a couple minutes. So I decided to take a walk, clear my head, do some praying, quoting of Matthew 4.4. 4. And I walked by, Jacob and Brittany Stevens live right here on Maple, and I walked by their house and they texted me, invited me in for dinner because they stopped me walking around. Now I would have gone in, except I missed the text and I was getting ready to go to the meeting And when I finally, when I saw it. But Brittany, you know, because she's awesome, was saying, oh, you missed Jacob's smoked candy bacon. Had I gotten that text, that fast would have been broken like that, okay? I would have been in there, but I had to get to the meeting. And so it was what it was. And so I I, I continued the fast, even though, again, I intended to break it when I got home. I didn't end up leaving the church that night until about midnight. and And by the time I went to leave, I was starving, I was so hungry, I didn't know what to do with myself. It's all my brain could think about over and over. we got to get something to eat. we got to get something to eat. I knew that there was nothing to eat at home. Uh, the, my family had eaten dinner with a small group, so there, there wasn't going to be anything there. And so I, I just started thinking, I'm, I'm going to go and get some fast food. Now, you've probably figured out by now that fasting is not easy for me for two reasons. One, it's not easy for anybody. Uh, maybe, maybe some, but and, and for most of us, fasting is incredibly difficult. And for me, that's true too. Now I've done 24, I've done 36, I've done three-day fast. I've done the longest fast I've ever done is six days. All of those were incredibly meaningful. They've deepened my reliance on God, my understanding. Uh, it's just incredible things that happen to them. Not that it's not difficult. But fasting is also difficult for me because it's not hard to figure out that gluttony is my sin of choice. I've attempted to slay every sin that's ever attempted to ruin my life. And I've gone at them like you wouldn't believe. I've had counselors. I've dealt with my sin. But for me, gluttony, it's my Achilles heel. It's it's the thorn in my flesh, as Paul would say it. It's my addiction that no matter how hard I work, no matter what methodologies I use, I continue to lose this battle. So fasting's hard for me because it's hard for everybody, but it's really hard for me because I have an unhealthy addiction and relationship with food. And so when I left that night, it was all of those things screaming, go get something to eat. And so now in my head, I'm going, I'm going to go get a double cheeseburger, a small fry, and a Diet Coke. Because, you know, the Diet Coke makes it okay, right? And by the time I got to the car, it was now a double cheeseburger, a large fry, and a Diet Coke. I was just starving, and I was fighting it. I was like, how can someone write a sermon about fasting is going to preach on Sunday about putting desire in its place and be such a hypocrite to go eat McDonald's at midnight, right? Right? So now I'm beating myself up and shaming myself that I'm that much of a hypocrite and this is where I am. And I'm praying and I'm asking God to help me. But by the time I get to the car, I've lost the battle. I know exactly where I'm going. And so I hit the windshield wipers to start the car, I hit the windshield wipers because there's dew all over the windshield. And all across the windshield comes a Ziploc back. And, and I go, I was parked right here on Columbia Street where my car has been hit multiple times. And so I I know what this is. This is someone's insurance information. My car's been hit. So now I'm hangry, right? So now I'm going to get a double cheeseburger, a large fry, a Diet Coke, six-piece McNugget, and I'm going to see if there's a deal in the app where I can get a free milkshake or something, because I'm, I'm just done at this point, right? And I go, I grab the Ziploc bag, I'm ticked, God, I just can't take it. I'm losing here. It's out of control. And I pick up the bag and inside of it are three pieces of smoked candy bacon. Guys, it was like manna from heaven. Non-Jewish manna from heaven. It's like God saw my need and where I was in that moment and my desire not to give in. And he met it. He met it in that place. And it, maybe this is a silly story, and it, and it kind of is, but is it? Is it too much to say that when we deny ourselves and when we learn to depend on God, that God will meet our needs? Surely that bacon was not healthy. Nobody's arguing that. But it was a lot better than double cheeseburger, large fry, six piece McNugget, and a milkshake and Diet Coke, right? But just tasting that, it did something. I like had a spiritual experience eating candy bacon on the way home. I was like, God, you're so good. What would it mean to be people who rehearsed self denial? We have no need for the most part, but to choose to put ourselves in a place of need in order that we could deny ourselves. We practice denying ourselves. We learn that art in order that we learn to fully depend on God. I think it would radically alter who we are as Jesus' followers. I think it would radically alter our understanding of God's providence and our satisfaction. And so I offer to you this morning that humans don't live on bread alone, but on every word, everything that comes from the mouth of God. And sometimes that's smoked candy bacon. Let's pray. God, teach us to be these people. Help us to be people who follow Jesus' example of denying ourselves in order that we deal with our our sin, our need to consume, our propensity to let our appetite own us, albeit food, sin, any desire that's not rightly ordered in our relationship to you. Help us to be people who practice, who rehearse denying ourselves in order that we learn to be dependent on you. Help us to be people who enflesh Moses' words and Jesus' words that Chris does not live on bread alone, but on every word, everything that comes from the mouth of God. Make us people like that, God, we pray through the powerful name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen, amen. Columbia, now you go and ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week. We'll see you back next week. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro DC area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings for directions, service times and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia go to columbiabaptist.org that's columbiabaptist.org